podcast tonight on the show. We're talking with Steve Serbik. He's going to be talking about mental health issues for first responders and what he is doing to help those people. Also, Nicole Porter joins me. She's a stress coach and wellness educator, and we are talking about overthinking. Dr. Caroline Madden is on the show talking about how marriages recover after infidelity. And of course, with the holiday season upon us, Rocky Lee joins us to talk about some of those most significant stressors and pressures that can be put on couples at this time of year. Tis the season. I am Maureen McGrath. workers. We think about paramedics, police, fire, nurses, doctors, all of those public safety professionals. Being a public safety professional can result in frontline worker stress, which can lead to increased feelings of depression and anxiety and confusion that may lead to resentment and even burnout on the job. If not checked, they may result in additional clinical problems such as major depressive disorder and even suicidal thoughts or attempts. Joining me in the studio is Steve Serbik. He is a retired assistant fire chief. He's going to share his own story and also tell us what he's doing for other people who suffer this stress. Good evening, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So you are a you were a firefighter. You were now once a firefighter, always a firefighter, I guess, but you're a retired assistant fire chief now. And now you're sharing your story and speaking out about this frontline stress and burnout and anxiety and depression, which you suffered. Yeah, I had my own struggles right in the middle of my career. And uh, I left my department that I was a firefighter in and I moved to a different region. I became an assistant fire chief there. And I struggled in my first year. I really struggled. Um, moving to a different department is hard. But the department I had left had just had uh, several suicides. So I was very sensitive about being a supervisor. And I wanted to have an open door policy so that anybody could walk into my office if they were struggling. And I struggled in the first year. And I met a gentleman um, from another department. He was the chaplain for their department. And he came in and assisted me in basically my own mental health. So as a supervisor, as an assistant fire chief, he helped me be vulnerable. He helped me talk about it. I started doing presentations about mental health and talking about the episode I had in the middle of my career as a firefighter. It was a bout of depression. It was triggered by an event. Um, My daughter was sick and I had three, I did CPR on three kids while my daughter was in the hospital potentially dying. So I went into a period where I was very depressed and I got out of it. Um, Clinical counseling, my huge proponent, I tell everybody who talks to me that's struggling, you got to find a good counselor. And if you don't like the one you're dealing with, find another one because it does work. It's a way to educate yourself about yourself. And speaking to a professional is the one way to do that. A good health professional is a key to good mental health. It sounds like you may have been a little burnt out. You had a move. That's a significant stress. You had a sick child. That's a significant stress. You were also responsible for some um, some other staff, but you also may have been grieving the loss of some of those colleagues who had died by suicide. So you had a lot on, and that can deplete us. Um, and it sounds like it did certainly deplete you. Yeah, I, I also took a position, maybe I, you know, when you become an assistant fire chief or a, or a supervisor or an inspector in the police department, you leave kind of the brotherhood. And then you're, they call it the dark side. You go to the dark side. Well, just like anybody, I want to be liked. And all that was happening. And I'm also a peer support counselor for firefighters when it comes to mental health. And I, I dealt with an incident very early on as a fire chief. And it was hard for me to deal with. Right. And what, are, what were some of your symptoms that you were experiencing? So I was really in good physical shape. And I know four firefighters who took their own lives that were in great physical shape. That's why the organization I created is called Muscular Mental Health. I was playing hockey and lacrosse three to four times a week. And within a period of a few days, I just didn't want to get out of bed. I had no energy. The energy was the biggest thing. And I asked my wife many years later when we went back and looked at it was she noticed that I was different, but Mm -hmm. she couldn't, she couldn't pinpoint it. And the funny thing about it is I, I took booze as my 
my, to how to medicate. That was your medication. Yeah. 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 And, you know, my doctor caught on to it. Some firefighters stepped in. And so I had good friends and I found clinical counseling because up until that point, I believe clinical counseling didn't work for me. I believe it didn't work. Right. Did you feel a sense of shame or that you were going to be sure. stigmatized? You didn't want to share this story with your colleagues? The stigma in the in the first responder culture, um, 81% of firefighters surveyed, 7,000 firefighters, anonymous survey, they said if they went to a supervisor or a another member of their department and said, I'm struggling, they would be looked at as weak or unfit for duty. And I think those numbers are higher. Right. And it's mostly men that are firefighters. We have female firefighters. I have a patient who's a female firefighter. So we certainly do have um, women. Um, but it's mostly men, isn't it? And this weakness is is really, um, men feel that more, that they would be weak if they were telling it to tell anyone they had depression or anxiety. We, we're taught to be strong. And to be honest, I... You know, I was told by a psychologist that I had PTSD about, you know, 15 years into my career. And I told him, please don't put that in my file. I had PTSI, I had an injury, just right. like you break a bone or you pull a muscle. Mm-hmm. You go to a clinical counselor or a psychologist mm-hmm. to get treated, to to get better and stronger. And since that time, I've become so strong. I Going through that and coming out on the other side is very, very powerful for Absolutely. Build some mental fortitude for sure. Yeah. Um, so you have some empathy and compassion, understanding about this. And so you've decided to do something about it. So tell me a little bit about your podcast and also your website, uh, muscularmentalhealth.com. I met an amazing human being and he helped me uh, speak to firefighters differently. And it was just firefighters at that time. And he coached me and mentored me. And he also suffered from depression, which was cool. But we both hadn't spoken outside of our conversation. So we built a relationship very quickly. But, you know, I haven't battled with strong bouts of depression in many years, but he still did. Mm -hmm. And he dealt with a couple of calls that put him in a bad way. And March 29th, 2018, the gentleman that I'd worked with for three years committed suicide. He took his own life. Yeah, yeah. Which is so, must be so difficult and so awful to, to see and witness. And we don't talk about this either. Um, this is something that's kept quite secret. You know, families don't want to say, um, but mental health is so critical to overall health. And so many people suffer, yet we judge others. And we, we do look at it as, as a weakness. What would you say to a firefighter, a police officer, uh, who is suffering, who is seeing tragedy day after day. You never know what you're going to uh, come upon. Um, and, I, and I imagine that's what, uh, you know, can really pull on your heartstrings and, and deplete your neurotransmitters. Um, so what would you say to somebody who is suffering? I tell them my own story, but if they come to me, I listen. I just listen because sometimes talking doesn't make things any better, just listening. And once there's a trust there, I tell them it's okay to not be okay. You know, you need to know when to take a knee. And I chose alcohol as my medication. And if I didn't have friends and a strong wife, my wife's a rock star. I took a knee and I told people, and it's just been in the last few years that I'm out telling people it's okay to talk about depression. It's okay to say you have depression because when you do that, you can grow out of that. And there's been so much personal growth for me. I've been able to help other people. And I did feel super vulnerable when my friend took his own life because we were doing the same work and we felt good about it. And it made me feel vulnerable. But I haven't had feelings like that in a dozen years. And he couldn't get out of it. But clinical counseling is maintenance for your mind, mm-hmm. just like being on the exercise bike is maintenance for your body. Right. Yeah. And sometimes people actually need medication. Yes. They will need antidepressants. Yes. Um, some of the SSRIs are, are quite good and safe medications. I wish we had more time to talk tonight, but we're definitely going to bring you back. So where can people access the, your podcast under cover mental health. They can go to muscular mental health and the podcasts are all all on there. And what they are is lots of people talk to me, but they're afraid to tell their story. So undercover mental health podcasts are for people who don't say their name or their department and they just tell their story. They want to sh- because it's so therapeutic to actually Feels verbalize good. and share Feels that good. story. Absolutely. You release a lot of the pain. Steve Serbic, retired assistant fire chief, muscularmentalhealth.com. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio and sharing your story in particular. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Merry Christmas to all the first responders that have to work this holiday season. Thank yeah, you. True enough. Thank you so much.
Infidelity is a big issue, especially around the holiday season. It can be the biggest betrayal, and it's arguably the worst pain in the world. Joining me on the line is infidelity expert Dr. Caroline Madden, and she's going to talk about how marriages can recover after infidelity. She's joining me from Los Angeles, California. Good evening, Dr. Madden. Good evening. Thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for joining me. So this is a very difficult subject made even more difficult at this time of year. It is so easy for people to cheat today, given social media, yet it's so easy to get caught as well, given the same reason. So uh, tell me, uh, infidelity, a lot of people wonder, can my marriage be saved because of the infidelity within it, whether they have been the person who has gone outside or whether they have found their spouse to be the one. So how is it that people can recover? Recover, that marriages can recover after infidelity? Well, it really takes both partners to first work on what was happening in the marriage before. Um, and is the marriage worth saving? I find most couples don't break up because of the infidelity. They break up because the marriage was already falling apart. So in re- helping your marriage recover, it, it's both partners taking a look at the marriage. Uh, the person who's went, went outside the marriage, of course, it's 100% on him or her for making that poor decision. But it's helpful if the partner, the betrayed partner, can look at the marriage on the whole and areas of improvement. So I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice who are in sexless marriages, and this can go on for two years, four years, a decade. And, you know, there's a tipping point for almost everyone. (laughs) Um, uh, And so oftentimes if they're not having intimacy in the marriage, they will go outside of the marriage. So how would you suggest uh, people recover after a a long time in a sexless marriage? Um, Well, I'm so glad you brought that up uh, because that is what I see in my practice is that people fall in love, they get married, they have a couple kids, and then they stop being husband and wife to each other. Um, So it's it's important to know that it's not just about sex. It's not just about an orgasm. It's about connection. It's about desire. It's about prioritizing the relationship. That's what's missed. People can go for sex for years due to medical problems or whatever, as long as both partners feel like they're both missing out on the sexual connection. Um, so it's that. It's one person is left feeling needy or um, well, needy. Uh, is lonely is one. so yeah needy, needy lonely depressed lonely, disconnected I've had clients who have been suicidal absolutely um, and yeah it, because it's it's just absolutely soul-sucking and you so mentioned after the children which is a very common time that the sex stops yes most of the clients coming in my office one one of the children is seven uh, seven to ten and that's because it's People are very understanding, hey, the first couple of years are going to be difficult having having a baby. But then, you know, five or six years go by and um, the sexual intimacy. And again, it's not just about the sex. And I think that that's a mistake a lot of people who are the lower libido partner make. Like, oh, it's just sex. You can get that yourself if you know what I mean. Uh, but it isn't. It's about the partnership. It's about being desired. It's about, especially for men, feeling appreciated. Um, so restoring intimacy, there's something called, and I'm sure you're familiar with the term hysterical bonding, which is once an infidelity has been discovered, uh, the former lower libido partner due to the person, either having someone else be attracted to him or her, or just the thought of losing them goes into a period of time of where they want to have sex nonstop, which sounds really great, except for the partner who was the higher libido partner who went outside the marriage, then says, oh, wait, all of these years, all of these excuses of why we couldn't be intimate, it really was just you didn't prioritize it, because here it is, you're prioritizing it, and we are able to have fun again. You are able to leave the kids with your mother for us to go away for a romantic weekend. So in it's harder for the higher libido partner because now he or she just doesn't trust it anymore. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but um, it is difficult to get it 
back on track, even if there's been a period of historical bonding. It is a bit, a bit of a mixed bag. This is also about prevention. And, and I wonder if you utilize this in your practice, as I do, um, responsive desire, educating women about responsive desire, which, uh, you know, after you've been in a relationship with somebody for a period of time, uh, it can be two years, four years, you know, you don't feel like having sex. It's the same person. Women report more boredom in the bedroom. And so if you're in a loving relationship, it's consensual and mutual, and you decide to accept your partner's sexual advances and you enjoy it, we call that responsive desire. It's the work of Dr. Rosemary Besson in Vancouver, British Columbia. And many women don't realize that because of the work of Masters and Johnson in the 50s, they expect that desire to come first. And so they often present to my clinical practice with, I have no desire. You know, they did when they first met the partner. And I, and I do see a lot more women with low sexual desire than men, although I do see men as well that, that have that. But women will say, I just don't feel like having sex with them. But helping women to yes. understand that responsive desire. Yes, and that is exactly what I talk about, is that our, our idea of the sexual response cycle is based on men, or which is desire, arousal, orgasm. Or the way it is in the beginning, when it's in that period of remembrance where you just can't get enough of someone. But the studies show that women in long-term relationships, desire and arousal happen concurrently. So what I suggest to the women in my practice is, when your husband makes a pass at you, give him two to five minutes, have a make-out section, because usually then he knows how to push the buttons and get it going, you know. Um, and you can still say no. You can still say, hey, that was nice that we made out, but I really, you know, I don't want to go farther. And again, it's not about the sex. It's about man feeling appreciated, desired, still masculine, still able to uh, connect and be appreciated by his wife. So that works so well. It's just like let your husband shoot a shot, make out for two to five minutes. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But you still have had that intimate time where he still feels like you like him. The whole you're going to be in the mood just like he's in the mood. It's like it doesn't work that way for women in long-term relationships. And that technique is extremely successful in, in my practice, extremely, which is let him make his move. And I always say make the move before the bedroom. Don't like get in bed and then be like, hey, so give the signs to your wife that, hey, tonight you'd like to, you know, make a move so she could just even mentally start getting in the right place so it doesn't come as a surprise, right, or she doesn't fall asleep before you get to the bedroom. And that the agreement is two to five minutes. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, you've had a nice connecting time and your husband hasn't felt rejected and demoralized over and over again. And now does this work for, I, I hear repeatedly in my clinical practice, um, I, I avoid his touch because I'm afraid he's going to want to have sex. So it's, it's that uh, I don't want him to touch me. I, I'm going to play dead. You know, I mean, many women report playing dead um, because they don't even want the touch. They don't want the hug. They don't want the cuddle because they are afraid it may lead to something and they are just too tired. And, and how often do you see women's uh, lack of self-care as a contributing factor to the lack of intimacy in a relationship? Oh, yes, because everything, everything comes before us. The, you know, the dishes, the laundry, the carpool in the morning, everything with the kids, and then, I don't know, returning to work emails at uh, night. So it's, it's, there's always the list of things to do, uh, and we always come last. And that then ends up being connecting to our husband. And then we end up getting resentful of him because he is trying to take care of himself and go to the gym and wants to have sex and wants to have fun with his friends. And instead of saying, gee, how can we have a conversation where I'm doing less, um, we tend to get resentful of of them taking care. And that also causes uh, distance in the bedroom. All right. I have a, a case for you. <laughs> I had a patient in my clinical practice uh, where she said that her husband had low sexual desire, but that she mm-hmm. had sexual desire. And then she told me about her husband and she said that he was overweight and he was a drinker and he was a smoker. And even when she asked him to take the trash out, he tripped and then hurt his back. And so then he was not only sedentary, but he was on the couch with an ice pack and complaining. And so I was a little perplexed and said, so you have desire for him? (laughs) 
I said, yeah. no, I have desire for somebody else that I have not met yet. She said, I have sexual desire, but it's not for my husband. So how do couples who have this desire discrepancy where one does not take care of themselves mentally, emotionally, physically, and that is actually a turnoff. And a lot of couples think, oh, they're supposed to be attracted to me for the rest of my life just because I created those vows. But we are human beings. So how is it that that type of an issue where somebody has low sexual desire in part because they're not taking care of themselves, how can that be resolved? And say somebody, she hasn't, but say she goes outside of the relationship and then he finds out about it. He's going to be fighting mad, I bet. Well, it's it's interesting because I, I just want to talk about women who are the higher libido partner. It makes women crazy. Men get very frustrated and, as I mentioned, suicidal and sweet and all this stuff. But it really makes it really hits a woman's self esteem because we are taught since we're little girls, men want you. They want it so much they'll take it from you. You have to guard yourself against men taking it from you. So getting in a relationship where you don't get to I call it, you don't get to say no to sex because if he's in the mood, he's the lower libido spouse. So when he's in the mood, you have to have sex or you're not having sex. It's really damaging, especially to women who were sexually abused as children because they have to say yes to sex if they want sex. So I do want to say that to the women out there who have a higher libido, that this is a special challenge. You aren't crazy. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, yeah, the, the self-esteem, and we don't talk enough about like men having low self-esteem regarding body image issues and depression. Um, and that they're told by society, oh, you should want it. You should be the higher libido partner. Um, and then when they don't, how they feel about that, it makes them feel even more emasculated than they feel anxiety and performance anxiety. Um so it can be it can be a tough combo, but it's also like anything else. What do you do when you're with a partner who is suffering from depression but won't get help? It's hard. Exactly. It's very difficult. And, you know, that partner can just carry on thinking, I'm just going to, you know, not take care of myself. And, and that's a big turnoff. I don't think they realize that, but it can lead to low sexual desire. So it kind of almost doesn't matter to them. But as you say, it does matter to the the woman who has the higher sexual desire in the relationship. Um, but, but taking care of oneself mentally and physically and emotionally is, is critical to intimacy. Um, you, it is, because if you can't, if you don't take care of yourself, it's hard to give to someone else. Right. So in those situations where it's been a, a sexless marriage and somebody has gone outside of the relationship, um, and it can be that they get along in every other arena of their lives, every other aspect they're getting along financially, the kids, the in-laws, the, whatever they have going on, all's great, except there's no sex. And so somebody, you know, goes to work and somebody makes a pass at them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and then the wife is enraged at this point. Can, can couples oh, recover I, from that? Yeah, well, because the lower libido partner is like nine-tenths of the relationship is great. Why do you just obsess about the sex part? And meanwhile, the higher libido partner is like, we're roommates. Mm-hmm. We're friends. I love you like a sister now. Um, sometimes it even gets flipped around that then he doesn't want to have sex, and then she's confused. Um, and this is the slippery slope. You know, when men say, I wasn't looking to have an affair, and they get criticized that that's ridiculous. It's not, is that they don't feel appreciated at home. They're at work. There's a coworker who sees that he's a dedicated family man, a good provider, uh, loves his kids, and laughs at his jokes. And they work on a project together and he feels successful again. And uh, then says to himself, well, here's this female coworker who's, by the way, married too, so she's safe. I'm going to get a female perspective on how I can engage my wife more. And then that just opens up the door to here are all the problems in my marriage. With then the female coworker saying, oh, I have problems in my marriage. And then the intimacy goes to a slippery slope. So it's not that even a pass is made. It's usually very gradual. Right. Um, and then it's the slippery slope, and then all of a sudden the man 
is having an affair, but he's saying to himself, he really has convinced himself, but isn't this better? My wife doesn't want me. My wife doesn't even like me anymore. She likes the lifestyle. She likes the family. She likes the paycheck, but she doesn't like me anymore. So I'm getting my adult needs met over here at work because that is usually where people find themselves in affairs. I'll get my adult needs met and I don't have to break up the family. Right. I'm actually father of the year. They are honestly surprised. <laughs> I deserve a medal. <laughs> yeah, well, they're honestly surprised. Okay, yes. When they're on my couch and their wife is breaking down, strong women, right, breaking down, saying, how could you have done this? And he's like, I thought you knew. I thought you were looking the other way because you don't even like me anymore. She's like, how do you think I don't like you? You don't even need me anymore. How do you think I don't need you? But it is that appreciation, and, and it's so many men, it can't be that each one is lying. It is, honestly, that they had come to believe the wife didn't even like them anymore. Absolutely. Carolyn Madden, PhD, it's great uh, conversation, great information. You've also authored a number of relationship books, included Blindsided by His Betrayal and Fool Me Once, and Should I Take Back My Cheating Husband, or an After a Good Man Cheats, How to Rebuild Trust and Intimacy with Your Wife. Uh, carolynmadden.com is your website. Thank you so much for all of your information tonight. Oh, thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's a great subject, and I'd love to have you come back and and, uh, dissect some of this a little bit further. you got questions. She's got answers. The Nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program today. We've all done it, even me, even though I don't tend to do this too often. But when I do, I notice it. I overthink. Do you? You, did you also know, I thought this was very interesting, that it's related to depression and anxiety. And Nicole Porter, who is a stress coach and a wellness educator, joins me in studio to talk about this very common behavior. Good evening, Nicole. Thanks for joining me in the studio. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So overthinking. I mean, honestly, I typically, I one time went to a, um, you know, it was a like a, a meditation guru. There were like 5,000 people in the audience. And I said to a friend that I was with, what are they doing? She said, they're meditating. I said, why? And she said, to calm their minds. And I said, well, what if there's nothing on your mind? You know, I am typically one of those people <laughs> that really doesn't have that much on their mind, blonde as I am. Um, that might be the reason. Um, but overthinking is a serious issue for a lot of people. Leads to rumination, depression, anxiety. Why do we overthink? Well, I I think that the main reason truly people overthink is because they don't trust their intuition enough. They don't listen to their bodies enough. And we're really jumping right into this because I'm very passionate about... Um, I'm passionate about the thought that when we overanalyze, when we overthink, when we get into a situation where we are ruminating, as you said, we are in our heads which means we are out of our body, kind of, we're not listening to our body, we're not listening to our intuitive sense, we're not listening to our gut, and then we get stuck in this cycle of rumination and can't make a decision. And are we missing out on life when we overthink? Absolutely, absolutely. And are we missing those subtle cues and hints and nuances as well? For sure. And I mean, even when you talk about the meditation retreat, I mean, that's there's so many, so many benefits to meditating that we aren't even aware of. Um, the, the, the calming of the nervous system, balancing your hormones, all of that can impact your health. Um, it's really hard for people to be still, unfortunately, especially in today's day and age. Um, it's hard for people to be still, but meditation is one of those things that can help you get clarity and, and really fine tune your thoughts and, and get more in tune with your body as well. So there seem to be two types of overthinking, uh, ruminating about the past, which is gone, and worrying about the future. And I see in my clinical practice, a lot of people will feel that if they worry, they're doing something. And then they're surprised that their worry didn't actually do anything. Mm-hmm. So how, what about those people who ruminate about the past? You know, 
it's uh, whether you're ruminating about the past or ruminating ruminating about the future, the same thing is is happening in the body. It's activating that stress response, right? And that's really what I'm trying to get people to be aware of is that that overthinking, just us sitting there thinking about something, we can literally make ourselves sick. So it's activating that stress response. It's activating that part of the nervous system that we really want to be more in, not in fight or flight mode, more in what's referred to as rest and digest mode. Um, And then again, balancing the hormones as a result. And what are some of the signs that uh, one is an overthinker? Like, for example, would would living or reliving embarrassing moments in one's head repeatedly, would that be one of the signs? And and what are some of the others? Oh, for sure. And, you know, talking about the same thing over and over again, right? There's a thing called co-rumination where, you know, one one of the tips I give people to sort of get out of that over analysis mode is to talk to somebody about it. And that might be a therapist or a counselor, but it might be a friend as well. Um, but you want to be careful of that co-rumination where the two of you or three of you end up in the same room complaining about things and, and just ruminating together. Um, so, so talking about things over and over can definitely be um, one of those, one of those uh, symptoms, let's call it, of overanalysis. Now, we live in this world of perfection perception, especially on social media, where we can edit everything, um, how, how thin we are, the color of our hair, eyes, uh, everything. Um, and so we also make mistakes because we are human beings. And so there's this disconnect between that, what, that perception we put out to the world and how we actually are, the mistakes that we have made. And so is, is reliving one's mistakes uh, a form of overthinking? A hundred percent, yeah. And, and so why is that? Why, why, does that, why would somebody uh, overthink that? I, I, I think that people will think about the past because it, they have, I mean, they have regrets. They, they maybe feel like they don't have the power or control to make that situation better. Um, you know, we're notorious as a society for just not feeling like we have control over our environment. And it's not to say that we have control over everything because obviously we don't, but we even have so much more control over our health than, than we think. We certainly do have so much um, control over our health, but yet people worry about it, yet they don't do anything about it necessarily. Um, There's also uh, the well-known serenity prayer uh, that a lot of people, you know, forget about, quite frankly. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so we'll, it goes on to talk about living one day at a time, enjoying moment to moment. Even I find myself, if I'm thinking about the future, I'll, I'll automatically say, you know, I'm, I'm actually going too far down the path mm-hmm. way um, on this. Um, so why is it that we forget to live in the moment and how, why is it so difficult for people? Oh, I think that especially today, we are so bombarded with, um, devices and information. I mean, you go to Google, you've got multiple choices, unending choices really. And we get, we, we aren't able to make a decision, right? I mean, there's a study that shows you know, people are most comfortable choosing from three choices. And most often they choose the option in the middle because that's where they're comfort- comfortable, right? Even They've even done the study with buying buying hammers and plungers in a, in a hardware store that people are the most comfortable buying what's in the middle. So we have, we have too many choices and I th- we, we have very powerful brains. You know, we are a very advanced, we're very advanced as humans and our brains are very advanced, but I joke that we can use that for good or evil. You know, absolutely. And as you say, we have so many choices in this world, and and this leads to analysis paralysis mm-hmm. and and difficulty making decisions. Is what comes first, and maybe a difficult question to answer: depression or overthinking, or does overthinking lead to depression? Does it lead to this depletion that I see quite often in my clinical practice, and where where people have missed out on on life going by? I think that is such a huge, huge question. Um, 
you know, I'm a nutritionist as well. And so I, I am, I don't believe nutrition is the answer for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly diet is an important piece of that. So what you put into your body and that even includes the, the things that you smell, the environmental toxins that might be out there, perfumes, whatever it might be, these all impact our cells and our brain is made of, of cells as well. We've got, you know, a hundred trillion cells or whatever that number is in our bodies. So to me, um, like I said, that's a, that's a big question. Um, but it, but it definitely, we need to fuel our bodies properly so that we're looking after our brains properly. Um, the two are very much tied together. We're actually seeing a lot of evidence, uh, with gut health and brain health. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I also think, I mean, this, this goes into the topic of, you know, how confident are people in themselves? How empowered do they feel? Um, and I'm certainly not the expert on depression. Um, but I think, you know, people who feel empowered and more in control, they or feel like they have control over an outcome, let's say, um, maybe they're getting more educated even that's, that's such an empowering thing to be educated. Um, it can help them to make decisions quicker and not second guess what they did or what they're about to do or whatever it might be. And, and procrastination is another uh, result of overthinking as well. And a lot of people procrastinate. I did a segment on procrastination maybe a year ago, and I got so many emails from people about that. Um, and, and it's that overthinking mm-hmm. it, uh, that may get in the way and prevent people from completing the job. Mm-hmm. And do you see that in with the clients that you help? Definitely, um, procrastination is certainly a thing. Um, the people who are coming to see me are usually at a point where they are ready to make a change. And so I do private coaching on some level, um, like that's part of my business. So when they come in, I'm, I'm there to encourage them and coach them and hold them accountable. It definitely doesn't mean that they are doing everything I say um, <clears throat> in, the, in the order or at the time that they should be. Um, but that's part of why I think people need someone to, to help them or to counsel them or coach them along the way for sure. And so if people are rehashing conversations that they had with people in their mind or when someone says or acts in a way they don't like and they keep replaying this, these are all examples of this overthinking that people might be experiencing. So how does one deal with overthinking? What do you advise? And I understand people may not, they need to be motivated, I For guess, sure. guess yeah. to uh, carry it out. Yeah, you know, I, I think people people definitely need to be motivated and sometimes that's not the headspace that they're in, right? They're just sitting there, they're analyzing, they're overthinking. And, and to be clear, I'm not talking about analyzing something this where it's necessary to analyze a business decision or analyze a purchase or whatever it might be. This is when people are stuck, stuck and just not moving forward and, and coming to an outcome or a solution. So a couple of things, I try to get people really to shift their focus. And yes, that does require some motivation, but as soon as they get started, it's like as soon as you can get your gym clothes on, then it's easier to get to the gym, right? But you've got to have that little bit of a kick in order to get the gym clothes on. So, and on that topic, exercise is one of those things that I recommend to people. Exercise just for stress in general, for deactivating that stress response. Exercise is an incredible thing. Um, you know, people, people think about it as a calorie burner or it makes me stronger or whatever it might be. But there are so many benefits that exercise has. It, it, so many benefits to our insides. It helps our immunity. It helps to burn off that blood sugar that, that stress is causing. It's good for our brains. So exercise is one. Um, it also moves that, the, the physiology, what's happening in the body, getting blood and nutrients to all of your cells is a really wonderful thing and oxygen to all of your cells. Meditation is another one. Um, How about scheduling time to worry? Fully. Do you recommend yep, that? Yep, yep. So give yourself a timeline, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow myself to ruminate about this for 20 minutes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then to give yourself a deadline by when you want to make that decision as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any mental uh, exercises that will help you to be mentally stronger? Meditation, I, I would say, is, the, is a huge one. Mm-hmm. I'm a big proponent of, of meditation, and it's, it's one of those things that um, can reduce stress in the body just by mm-hmm. you sitting there and mm-hmm. breathing. It doesn't right. cost you a dime. No, it doesn't, yeah. and, uh, and it's a very valuable 
uh, asset to help to deal with your mental muscle and to help to reduce overthinking. But but getting help um, is critical, and they can go to see you. How can people get in touch with you? I am at NicolePorterWellness.com. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the information. I think it's a very interesting subject and one we don't talk about too much. So I appreciate you offering that subject uh, to the show tonight. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Maureen. It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Here we are on the final strokes of the program. And joining me in studio is relationship coach Rocky Lee. And we're going to be talking about how the holidays can affect relationships and the pressure they put on couples. Good evening, Rocky. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me here again. You are very welcome. Um, Great to have you. So this is a tough time of year for a lot of couples. They can be the best of times, but they can be the worst of times as well. And so what are some of the most common pressures that couples face during the holiday season? The big one, mm-hmm. expectations. Oh, I thought you were going to say sexpectations, but you said expectations, but that that's, can be right That's to tied say. into it. <laughs> of course. Okay. So the expectations, really. So tell me a little yeah. bit about that. I think that when we go into the holiday season, we all have in our mind fantasies about what the holiday is going to be like, what the Christmases, our get-together is going to be like, how we're going to feel about each other during that time. Uh, there's hopes if our marriage is already dried up or, or, or it's on a rocky boat, we're hoping that, oh, this maybe could revive us. Maybe we'll have a really good time. We could start the year off fresh and anew. Um, so expectations are really, really hard. And one of those things is that it plays on our fantasies. And our fantasies are always like, it. my marriage should look like this. My relationship should look like this. And usually those fantasies are kind of like a, a creation of things that we've always wanted, but we've kind of collected it off of TV shows and movies and books that we've been, you know, soaked up. And then we kind of match that up to our current relationship and then we overlay them and then we go, oh, it's not matching. Right. How about our childhood? How about for people who maybe had difficult times uh, during the holidays, whether there was not enough money or there was uh, alcohol in the in the home or abuse? Um, do they put a higher uh, expectation or a higher desire to have this sort of perfect Christmas and have everything just right? It can affect that. Absolutely. And and so, you know, oftentimes I say to people, expect nothing. Everything you get is a gift. You know, perfect, and um, and so because you can get so disappointed when you expect something from somebody and then they they don't come through, and so it's a letdown. Well, and that's where expectations lead into us having stress and experiencing stress, which is really one of the things that we encounter over the holiday season. We we, we think it's about the shopping and wrapping gifts, and am I going to have time to buy gifts? Am I going to meet these deadlines before the end of the year? And those are some of the things that play into our relationship. But some of the stresses really come out of our expectations that we think should happen. And then when they don't, it just kind of pushes us over the edge. And so how about intimacy over the holidays? How much of an issue is that? Is that something that tends to actually drop off over the holidays in couples and and cause issues? And then we have the holiday parties and the office parties. And, and, you know, if somebody's not feeling it or whatever or drinking too much and, you know, one thing leads to another, can people get in trouble over the holidays? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really all based on, how much bitterness have you been dragging through the year? It really comes down to that. Right. It comes out at the office party. Huh? It, it comes out at the <laughs> office party. I've been to two or this the, week. Or the family <laughs> Christmas dinner, whichever one you pick. This is true. It'll come out in either one of those areas. It, it and again, it leads out. back into expectations, right? We have expectations on how those things should turn out. And, and so what... You know, if somebody has this particular expectation, like last year's Christmas was horrible and this year is going to be perfect. And so this is what we're going to do this year <laughs> um, to make it perfect. And somebody's putting pressure on somebody else or the entire family, perhaps. Um, and that can cause problems as Huge. well. So how do people deal with that Um facing the holidays after they've maybe built up resentment throughout the whole year and now they have to make it all look beautiful and wrapped up with the best looking bow ever. 
Yeah, the easiest thing to do is just to forgive. It really is. And and there's really, I, I, I don't know of any other way to quickly heal the way that we have expectations except by actually just forgiving and then moving forward. And so forgiving uh, is actually a gift you give to yourself. Yeah. So it's less pressure on you and instead of this whole resentment that you've built up. But, you know, a lot can be built up over 11 months. And, and so people are stubborn as well. And so they think, uh, okay, I'll forgive you, but you're going to just going to do the same thing over and over again to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty common question that I get. It, you know, the answer is forgiveness. I think the one thing that people miss out on is what I would just call as contextualization. And really it's just that if you could just think of if you were on your deathbed right now, what would you regret? And I think we all know what the answer is. We all know how we would show up differently in this world. Even if I were to expand that question and say, if you were guaranteed to die next year, how would you show up differently at this Christmas? Mm -hmm. We all know what the answer would be. Mm-hmm. So forgiveness is paramount to that process. The decision, though, is understanding that life's short. And so why am I torturing myself over this process? And why am I holding grudges or resentment or bitterness towards somebody that maybe they didn't actually mean to? Mm-hmm. It could have just been a real failure on their part, but really not a character issue. Right. You were talking earlier about um, the stressors that we, the Mm -hmm. two categories of stressors that we have. Do you mind reviewing that for the listeners? Yeah. So there's kind of three different categories of how we play with our thoughts. And two of these three categories always leads us to stress. So I kind of classify them as my business, other people's business, and God's business. So if I'm thinking thoughts and I'm in God's box or God's business, my questions are usually, you know, why is this happening to me? Or how come this is happening to me again? Or what if this happens? Well, there's no solutions to those problems. These are questions that are beyond the scope of any human being. And is that that you put them in God's hands? Is no, that, they're just that, very, another way to call it would be kind of like the CNN philosophical question. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, why is this happening to me? You know, and, and then there's really no actual solution but for that. But is it a bit of a victim mode? Is it a, somebody plays the victim? I always think when you, when you ask why, you play yeah. the victim. Yeah, you, that is one way that you could look at it. I, I think I just look at the God box as being the questions that we ask that are so overwhelming mm-hmm. because there's no way to actually process it. They're mm-hmm. just too big. And that's why with the other bi- people's business, that box, the questions that we typically kind of fall into is should, a could, or an if. So this person should have done this mm-hmm. or you could have done this instead. Right. Right. And and again, it's out of our control because now I'm actually saying that in order for me to be happy, I need you to participate in this process. Right. So now we're stuck if that person doesn't want to participate. So that gets back to those expectations right. where you have this expectation and they, they should have invited me to the party. They should have actually you know, sent me a thank you note for that. That's right. They should have done this. And if they, and therefore, if they don't do that, then somebody's less likely to give again, perhaps, right? As simply put. Yeah. Or, or actually, you brought up a really great point there. So when we have that should, this person should have invited me to the party. What we're really doing is we're asking out of a pain. That's what the question is. The need is actually me saying, I really want to draw close to Maureen. I just don't know how to do it with this kind of my thought process here. Invite me to the me. party. I love so them. That's right. So, <laughs> so that's why if I'm in my box, really the question is, well, what's one thing that I need to do? If I really want to draw close to Maureen again, well, it's easy. I just need to invite her to my party. Right. And that just solves it all. But but then if you decide, I'm not going to invite her to the party. I mean, this is the other thing. We have these yeah. ideas that, okay, I didn't get invited to the party because they don't like me, they don't want me, right. I was, you know, whatever. Um, when it actually could be uh, that it may not be that you don't like me. It could be actually that you don't think that I would go to the party. You know, yeah. how, how often do we not invite someone to the party because we think they wouldn't want to come anyway? But why make that decision? That's right. Then you're in that in their business box. That's right. right? That's that's right. So it's just really being mindful. Yeah, and sometimes that's a God box because now we're asking, well, why didn't they ask me? Exactly. Like, this is just so painful. How come they didn't ask me? 
Now Absolutely. we're now we're stuck back on that pain box. Yes, yes. Well, I was playing guitar at a Christmas party last night, and that's probably why they're never going to ask me back again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we volunteered. We're like, yeah, we're going to play for you. Uh, you didn't ask for this, but we're doing it anyway. So I imagine I'm off that party list. <laughs> so some of the other expectations around the holiday season is the big engagement. Here yeah. it is. We've been going out for a year, year and a half. Time to pop the question. Everybody says this is a great time. It's going to be most romantic, but you're not feeling it. How do people deal with that, those stressors and those pressures? Yeah, those stressors and pressures that you've just said actually starts way before the holiday season. It really comes down to the one person that already has that desire in their heart. Are they having that discussion with their partner? Are they genuinely bringing this up? And what we normally do is we'll go through a dating relationship and we'll hope that this happens. We never bring it up. We never talk about what is this relationship called? What does it really mean to either of us? So none of this stuff ever gets brought up. On the other hand, if a single person were just simply to be upfront and say, listen, I really, really love you. I really would love to have a meaningful relationship forever with you. Where are you at with this? What do we call our relationship? If they actually did that in April... Now they've got something they could look forward to in the holiday season. Right, right. But we normally just wait until the holiday season where we start asking that question. And then we get disappointed because the ring didn't come through. That's right. got me earrings instead or a scarf. And you're like, a scarf? They should have gotten me. And the funny thing is we read body language really fast. So we already fantasize about it. Right. And then we think, oh, that was the hint. And then we're expecting it at Christmas. And right. it doesn't come or, right. or we're expecting it at New Year's Eve. It doesn't come. That's right. Exactly. Bomb. Exactly. I do want to, uh, full disclosure here. I got a scarf for Christmas from <laughs> <laughs> one of my colleagues and I love it. And I actually haven't taken it off <laughs> all weekend. <laughs> so thank you. I love the scarf. I was not disappointed. Um, but <laughs> um, I want to talk about the single people because yes. I was speaking to somebody recently and who's having some troubles and I had noticed some issues that were going on and, and the person, you know, was really upset and started crying saying that she had expected to be married by this stage of her life and it just wasn't looking that way and you know she's 27 years old but all of her friends are married and so you know her life is is tough right now so what do you say to single people at this time of year who are uh, alone um, hoping to be married hoping to start a family yeah and uh, and no one in sight and with the dating site we were talking about with criminals on it earlier yes. um, you know the prospects are not looking good and sometimes well oftentimes there's a parental expectation Expectation and a cultural expectation too to get married. So how do you help those people go through the holidays? Mm. So for singles, I normally encourage them by saying there is hope. Starts off with understanding statistically there is 7 billion people in this world. I'm sure we could find somebody within that number <laughs> for you. There's 37 there million, million in Canada. Away. I think there's somebody there we can find for you. So there, the stats are there. It's, it's not the issue of you know, where can I find this or where are all these people? Mm -hmm. They're there. Where they're stuck is they're not clear about what it is that they're looking for when it comes to marriage. And the shift has to be, are you looking for what you want in a relationship or are you looking for what you need in a marriage? These are two different things. It's the difference between me buying a car, I'm a family of four with two boys, and I go to a Ferrari dealership looking for a car for my family, but they only sell two-door sports cars. Exactly. I'm not clear about what it is that I'm looking for. Exactly. And so if you buy that, (laughs) then that's going to result in a whole lot of other troubles as well. Exactly. So our decisions that we make in life are really important. Rocky Lee, so fabulous to have you back on the program again. How can people get in touch with you? Well, you can reach me in two different ways. You can reach me on my website, claritycoach.ca. If you're a married couple, you can reach me on claritycoachcouples.ca and I'd be Happy to answer any phone calls or questions that you guys would have for the holiday season. Wonderful. Okay, that's so. Thank you so much for coming on the program and talking about this because this is a t- it's a wonderful time of year, but it's also a very tough time of year yes. for a lot of couples. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.